Matthew chapter 10. We've been watching King Jesus bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So read with me God's word. Now, we're going to read a number of verses. I don't know how much Bible you read every day. This might be your weekly intake. It's 42 verses, but it's God's good word. And when I asked Justin to preach and kind of said, hey, is this Sunday work? And he said, yeah, what's the text? And I sent it to him and it was a pretty large chunk. And he was like, what am I supposed to do with that? <clears throat> I said, well, that's up to you. You already agreed to preach. Um, but part of what we're doing that's a little bit unique, I, I've seen preachers almost take pride in spending like seven years in Matthew or Romans or some book. And I just think, I just don't have any interest in that. And so I started thinking, I want to walk through the book of Matthew. I think it's very valuable for us to see who Jesus is, but how can we do it in a way that's not too slow? Like, how, how can we get, Matthew didn't write this thinking like, hey, for the next seven years, this one church is only going to read my letter, right? So we started looking at these larger portions of scripture in the book of Matthew and realizing there are all sorts of themes that get piled together that sometimes we miss because our little headers in our Bible make us think we can stop or a, or a chapter ends and so we close it and then we pick up the next day and we fail to make these connections. But actually when we read these huge chunks of scripture together, we begin to make connections that God intends for us to see. So this morning, let's read Matthew chapter 10 together. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These 12, Jesus sent out, instructing them, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey or two tunics or sandals or a staff for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it's not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it's not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved when they persecute you in one town flee to the next for truly i say to you you will not have gone through all the towns of israel before the son of man comes a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master it's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master 
If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my father who's in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my father who's in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring a peace, to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Father, this is your word and we are thankful. Speak to our hearts. Help us to be quiet enough to hear your still, small whisper. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there's a pastor, uh, who, a guy who was a pastor in Austin, Texas, named Jonathan Dotson, who wrote a great book on evangelism called Unbelievable Gospel. And in it, he talks about some of the defeaters that keep us from sharing the gospel. I think we all have a whole uh, list of defeaters that keep us from living a life of mission with Jesus. We have all sorts of things that keep us from that. One of the primary ones is this massive misunderstanding about what mission even is. We're actually, I don't think, we're called to mission for Jesus. I think we're called to mission with Jesus, right? And, and oftentimes we think about living on mission or inviting people to church or sharing the gospel or doing good works of the kingdom as something we do for God and then we come back and we feel guilty that we haven't done enough or haven't done it right, but we're actually called to mission with Jesus, we may think we're not really called to that kind of work of maybe outreach or evangelism or inviting people to church or maybe overseas missions or church planning and we think maybe God's given that to somebody else. That's clearly somebody else's calling because it's not mine. We may think we're not equipped to do it. We may think we don't know what to say. We may be afraid we don't have answers if people ask us questions. And you may be thinking, exactly right, Pastor Johnny, so I am not. Uh, going to be engaging in any sort of mission because you are naming all the reasons right now in the introduction. We may be scared because we know we're making ourselves vulnerable if we step out to live on mission with Jesus, right? We're going to engage people in a conversation that they might not accept and the relationship might fracture and fall apart. The good news is that Jesus knows all of this and he anticipated it even in his own followers. And so in this text this morning, he anticipated these kinds of questions, so he provided a specific kind of teaching 
It was almost like a manual for like, hey, here's how you go and live on mission with me. Before he was crucified, resurrected, and ascended to heaven, he sent them out a couple different times. You can see the narratives in Matthew and Luke and Mark where he sent out his disciples. And it's almost like these practice runs where he's giving them some practice and some coaching as they return on how to do this thing so that when he's gone, they can faithfully go and carry on his mission. Matthew 10 is one of those times, and and here's our main point this morning. Christ enables his followers to become his co-workers. Christ enables his followers to become his co-workers. So in this text, we're going to look at three things this morning. First, we're going to see the call. Then we're going to see the consequences. And then we're going to see the confidence. The call, the consequences, and the confidence. Let's start with the call this morning. Who is called? Who is Jesus calling to send out on mission with him? Sometimes, I'll be honest, I get to a place in scripture that's a list of names, and I skip it. Okay? I'm no better than you. Okay? We've all been there. There's a census, there's a list of names, and -and so-and-so begat so-and-so, where you go to Matthew 10. Uh, The names of the 12 are, let me skip down to the end of the names, and let's keep going. Maybe you've heard the names, maybe you know the names, or maybe you think the names are inconsequential, but when I started thinking about this text and I started thinking about, okay, what, what all is God trying to show us here? Why would he include the names? Anytime we read a list of the disciples' names, I think we ought to be amazed that Jesus could use such a ragtag group of people. We should be amazed that the God-man would invite these kinds of people to not only follow him, but then represent him. These aren't just friends that he kind of had in private that he didn't want anyone to know about. These were people that he actually put, gave his authority to and then sent out. So I think it should show us something that who is called in Matthew 10 to go on mission? These disciples. So who is Jesus calling today to go live on mission? Let me tell you something. Jesus delights to use the unexpected. He delights to use the weak. He delights to use the people that think, No, I really cannot be used by God. I heard it said all growing up that God equips the called. He does not call the equipped. God is not looking for the biggest and most skilled that he can then leverage their gifts for his glory. In fact, God is the opposite. He takes oftentimes the least equipped. Kind of like this group of disciples. That's one of the great arguments of the New Testament for me. If this whole thing is made up, they sure made themselves look bad. Why would you make up a document and not make yourself out to be quite the hero? If Peter really was as influential in the early church as we read that he is in Acts, why would he have let these documents spread that paint him in such a bad light? I think one and maybe the most simple argument is that this is all true. This is how it really happened. And part of what we can learn from this is that God delights to call us and invite us to join him on mission and then equip us to do it. So we see who's called there, but then what are they called to do? Jesus passes on his authority to carry out his mission. We had a conversation a couple weeks ago as elders because we realized that authority is a major theme in the book of Matthew. And it was like, do we need to hit pause and like talk about authority for a while? And we may, there might be a point sometime later this year or later on where we spend a few weeks looking at authority. And this is another place this word gets brought up. That Jesus gives, him, gives them authority to go proclaim the good news. 
And, and what are they doing? They're doing exactly what we've seen Jesus do. They're proclaiming, I mean, word for word, Jesus just gives them the same message. Hey, tell them, the kingdom's here. The kingdom is at hand. And then what does he tell them to go do? The same kinds of things Jesus has been doing. Healing and casting out demons and raising the dead. Oh, I think what we see here can be summed up kind of in two big words. What are they called to go do? What is the call of this mission? It's to declare the words of the kingdom and to display the works of the kingdom. That is holistic mission. We really can't have biblical mission without both of those. He gives them a word to speak. Hey, the kingdom is here. The king has arrived. And because that king has arrived, that changes everything about the way we live. His kingdom brings a new reality to bear on those that are invited and really do join his kingdom. True mission involves both words and works. And then we see where are they called to go. Now, we don't have time to dive into like why is he starting with Israel and why does he say don't go to the Gentiles and part of it has to do with the way God's mission was intended to work. If you see in the Old Testament, God had worked through his people but he was not only interested in working in his people. His interest in calling and electing and choosing the people of Israel was always that they would have a missionary posture to the nations. Go read the book of Exodus. I have saved you that the nations may look at you and know that I am God. Right? So there was a missionary call in the Old Testament on the people of Israel. And so God is still, even at the beginning of Jesus here, we know because Jesus already ministered to people who were Gentiles. So we know that the answer here can't be that Jesus was only uh, interested in, in reaching and caring for and loving Jewish people. We know that that's not the answer because we've already seen the opposite. What he's doing is he's trying to fulfill the Old Testament pattern of, I've tried to work through Israel, now let's send the Messiah and see if they'll respond. And so that's part of what it means, like where are they called to go, but, but notice the way he describes, um, you're gonna enter a town or a village and you're gonna find out who is worthy in it. What does that mean? How do you identify a worthy person? How do you identify someone who's worthy to receive the mission of God? Well, I think we gotta go kind of back to our first point of who's called. It's not the kind of people you might expect. So who are they called to go to? Well, they're called to go to the worthy homes. And what made a home worthy? Not that it was the most comfortable, the largest, the most respectable, or most influential. That's not the kind of home they were to look for. They were to look for the people that were receptive to the message that they were bringing. They were to look for the people that were receptive to them. They probably had to get creative because I'm guessing the respectable, influential, largest homes might not have been respectable uh, or, or might not have been receptive to a new homeless guy saying he's king over everything, right? So the people who were receptive of that might, might have been a bit shocking. It might have been off-putting to go, Oh, I was really hoping that house would have said yes. Did you smell the food walking up to the door? Did you see how comfortable it looked in there? Did you see the space? Boy, imagine if they'd have said yes. And Jesus said, like, a laborer deserves his wages, so we couldn't bring stuff with us, but, but we could receive, you know? Like, like, we're doing the work of the ministry, and they'd, they'd pay for, they seemed like they would have paid pretty good if that house would have received us. And so I just find it interesting that this call, it just seems totally backwards, maybe from the way we would do it. We would think, move into a town and find the most influential person and spend as much time as it takes to get that person on your side. Because then once they're on your side, they can influence everybody else in the town to join your side as well. 
And Jesus just says, I'm not interested in that. I'd rather start with the lowly, the outcast, whoever is receptive to the message. So we have this, this call of Jesus to join him on mission. It's for everyone. It's not for the equipped. It's not for the strong or those who are uh, smooth talkers. No, no, no. It's for all who follow Jesus. And it's both words and works. And then we're called to go pretty indiscriminately and then see who responds to the message and who responds hospitably to us. But if you keep reading in this passage, it's kind of the bulk of the middle section of it. We see the consequences of being on mission with Jesus. See, it doesn't just end with a call and Jesus says, go, you'll have great success. He says, go, and then in verse 16, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. This is dangerous. Jesus tells them up front, this is, da- this is a dangerous calling. You're gonna be a sheep in the midst of wolves. Sheep in the midst of wolves is not safe. There is a personal threat of rejection that comes with this call. He talks about that above verse 16 when he says that, um, I'm sorry, he talks about that later on as he, he, in verse 21, brother will deliver over brother to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death and you'll be hated by all for my namesake. There is a personal threat of rejection. So this would have been personally as they go through cities, like it might not have been people they know, they would just be trying to, hey, um, you know, I'm, I'm trying to talk to you about the king who's arrived as people slam the door in their face, it's like, okay, that, that hurts. Even if you don't know who that is, that's personal rejection. But then there would have been personal rejection among relationships that you already had. But then there's also a public threat of punishment. These kinds of consequences come from those in authority. And they're extended beyond just personal or religious rejection. Rulers, governors, and kings would punish Jesus followers for spreading the news of Jesus. So my question couple questions for us this morning. Does that surprise you? Does that surprise you? Does, does the level of threat, the level of danger, the level of opposition, does that surprise you? That Jesus anticipated all of that. That doesn't surprise me that he anticipated it. It, it kind of, you'd think if it's the God of all creation, maybe it would go a little smoother. Have you ever experienced personal rejection because of Jesus? Have you experienced broken relationships because you decided to follow Jesus? Have family members or dear friends written you off because of your new identity in Christ? Maybe have you ever experienced public threat, right? A threat of punishment because of Jesus. I think much of the way this applies to us right now, much of the public threat, right, is not yet, it's not, uh, a threat of being like what we're doing is illegal. But much of the public threat right now is that what we're doing is extremely unwelcome. It's taboo. It's because we're, we're making an exclusive claim that has moral and ethical implications on people's lives. And right now, the cultural narrative is that anything that stands in the way of self-expression is deemed some form of bigotry, You can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me who I am and you can't tell me how to live. And if you stand in the way of that, you're an abuser for me expressing who I really am. So I think for Jesus, if he were speaking to us today, like, hey, there is a threat of of public punishment 
You say, what kind of punishment is that? There's gonna be places it's really difficult to work. Right, there's gonna be places that when you take a stand for certain things that you believe are biblical or even you try to invite people to know Jesus or you talk about the gospel or even if you live in a different kind of way, it's gonna be hard for you to run in the right kind of circles that allow you to move up a certain kind of corporate ladder. It's gonna be difficult in school for our kids. Right? I mean, it's not going to be easy. Jesus minces no words when he talks about that. Now, I am an optimist. I hate when people talk negative. I grew up in a church tradition that was so obsessed with the end times that I have just a great reflex against some of that. But with my reflex against being, I don't want to be overly negative. I don't want to be overly positive either. Jesus tells us this is not going to be safe. This is dangerous. We're entering into a world that has its own kingdom structure set up. And in that kingdom structure, they don't want to be told they're not right. So when you come in saying, the king is here, the true and rightful king, all of a sudden we're a threat. We're going to have to decide what, what are we going to do when we face these personal threats of rejection, the public threat of punishment, what should we do? Jesus assumes that these things are going to happen and then he teaches us how to respond. First, be wise and innocent. One without the other simply won't do. We've got to be wise as serpent and innocent as doves. And you say, what, what does that look like? Wise, I, I think there's, there's some measure of, um, we, we've got to be strategic, right? The first day of your nice, lovely corporate job is probably not the time to practice your sermon on John 3.16 in the break room, Right? Uh, you probably don't need to interrupt your professor on your first day of college to share a 30-second gospel presentation. There is wisdom involved in sharing Jesus, right? We need to be concerned with doing it in a way that honors people, that's respectful of who they are and their story. It involves a lot of listening. Where are people coming from and how can I engage them based on their experiences or their current beliefs? We've got to be wise, and that's going to mean times that we don't <laughs> just share everything without any sort of filter, and we've also got to be innocent. We've got to be pure-hearted. We've got to recognize that the innocence in us is almost borders on naivety, where we're willing to walk into places and eventually share the gospel that we know, I'm going to pay the price for this. That doesn't mean we go out of the way looking for suffering, like I said, on the first day of your job, just stopping the office saying, hey, look, I need everyone to know something about me. No, no, that might not be wise. But we need both of them, right? Because if you're only the wise, you might eventually, D.A. Carson talked about, if you only have that wise as serpent, then you could eventually border over into like just this shrewd, unlikable person, which is not who we see Jesus being. But if you're only innocent, right, you could just be super naive as you walk in in this boundaryless life where you just feel like you gotta keep pouring out love in places where God is asking you in wisdom to actually move on to the next. Dust your feet off and go to the next town, go to the next person, go to the next home. So we ought to be wise, we ought to be innocent. But second, don't be anxious about what to say. In other words, keep on proclaiming the good news. Some of us, me, us, I'm in that, are like, super overwhelmed with sharing the gospel because you go like, what do you say? How do you start the conversation? What do you do in the middle? What do you do at the end? What do you do when they ask you questions? I don't know what to say. 
I think it's very interesting the way Jesus talks about this in verse 20, 19 and 20. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. He did not give them a pre-prepared speech. He did not tell them it would come much ahead of time. In that hour. That'd be like if I got the sermon at 9.30, church starts at 10.30. It's like, hey, within the hour, you'll get something to say. Now, I don't think we should do that preaching. I don't think you want that. I don't think I want that. But I think the principle here is that oftentimes you're not gonna feel confident about what to say until you've taken the step of obedience to begin the conversation. Some of us don't know, like, what what in the world am I gonna say if I talk to this neighbor, this friend, this person, and I know they're gonna have questions. I don't know how to answer. The truth is you don't need to know what to say until you're in the situation to say it. So if you feel unsure about what to say when you talk to someone about Jesus, that's okay. Jesus assumes you're gonna feel unsure about that. He assumes you're gonna feel anxious about it. And he comforts you by saying that you're gonna have the Holy Spirit that's gonna help you. And third, Jesus, how do we respond to these consequences? He he invites us to endure. He invites us to endure. Now, D.A. Carson says this word is, it's less of like active resistance, and I love the way he describes it as just patient endurance. Hang in there. Hang on. Don't give up. Keep on enduring. As we've looked at these consequences and some of the ways Jesus invites us to respond, I want to pause. You might be thinking, how can I do that? How can I endure? How can I face these consequences? How can I take up this call of Jesus? How can I take up these challenges of of being on mission with Jesus? Maybe this morning you came in here already tired, already exhausted, already burnt out, overwhelmed, whatever was on you that you were carrying when you walked in this morning. Maybe you heard the first point of the message and you went, okay, that's too much. You're asking me to add something else to my life and be on mission with Jesus. Goodness gracious, I don't know if I can do that. And then you heard the second point and you said, okay, I told you I couldn't do the first and now number two, you're telling me it's gonna be really painful and challenging and maybe you feel like this message so far has just overwhelmed you. I just wanna acknowledge that for a second and say that I've heard many messages on missions and evangelism that are actually gospel-less. I think the motivation's right. Right? Like we're inviting people to go share the gospel, inviting people to plant churches or become missionaries. But I think this is the one singular issue for followers of Jesus that we might feel guilt about more than any other because we always feel like we haven't done enough. We always feel like we haven't done it right. We don't really know how to change. And maybe up to this point in the sermon, you're thinking that same thing. You heard the first point, I can't do it. You hear the second point, well, that's just piling on. What in the world could possibly enable us to follow Jesus in such a way that we join him on mission and we are on mission with him, inviting people into the kingdom of God? And that's what our last point is all about this morning, confidence. The call, the consequences, and confidence. In verses 24 and 25, Jesus says this, a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It's enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Satan, evil, how much more will they malign those of his household? The first and primary point this morning about why we can take up the call, why we can face the consequences, and why we can have confidence in it all 
is that Jesus goes first. He tells us that we'll be like our teacher, a disciple. You're gonna be like the one who's discipling you. Ultimately, Jesus is that, right? He's maligned, so they can expect to be maligned too. We're gonna be persecuted. Well, Jesus was persecuted. We're gonna face opposition. Well, Jesus did that. Jesus went first. What happens when we say, you go first? My kids sometimes will say that. They'll play upstairs all morning. And then once everybody's downstairs, it'll be like, hey, I need you to go up and grab this from your room. They're like, I don't wanna, I don't wanna go up there. I'm like, okay. They're like, you go first. I remember I grew up going to Whitewater. Okay, anybody been to Whitewater? Water Park uh, in Marietta, super fun. All sorts of things in the water, I'm sure. We don't go now, Our brother, my brother-in-law keeps me from it uh, and our kids, but I grew up going and it was a lot of fun. And I remember, I mean, we went when I was little, so I grew up like looking forward, like I'm doing that next summer and I'm doing that and then the next summer, like okay, I can we do the bigger one? But I, I mean, you remember, you get there and it's like, you're with your friends, you're at the top, and you're like, all right, now you go first, right? <laughs> you go first. What are, we, what are we wanting when we ask someone to go first? Whether it's a parent going up the stairs facing the dark, whether it's a friend jumping down the water slide first. Well, what are we looking for? Now you go first. What we're saying is, I want you to show me this is safe. I want you to show me this is safe and it's okay for me to do. I want, to sh- I want you to do this first and face all the potential consequences so then I can follow and know what's gonna come out the other side for me. Well, Jesus goes first for us and he shows us that the way of life he invites us to, it, worst case scenario, it, it actually does lead to death. But, but when you come face to face with death, You say, will you go first? Carrie's not in here, so I think I can talk about how Harry Potter ends. She hasn't finished it. And I'm picturing when he brings his parents back and he's going to what he knows is his inevitable death. And he's standing there looking at his parents that he's never had a conversation with in all seven books. And he knows, he's like, I gotta go, I gotta go sacrifice myself. And he, he asks, he says, does it hurt? Do you feel anything? He wants to know what it's like. Is this, well, you went first. What can I expect? And when we face a call like this, when we face consequences like that, when we face death itself, God gives us Jesus who has gone first. He has gone first into death and he actually showed us that the way of life inevitably leads to death. But (laughs) he also went through death out the other side. That's the beauty of the gospel. The gospel of Matthew tells us a story with increasing hostility between Jesus and the Roman rulers and Jesus and the Jewish authorities and eventually they come together to not just persecute, not just beat, not just torture, but kill Jesus. But that's not how the gospel ends. The gospel ends with Jesus going first, having faced all the hostility that he warns his disciples about in Matthew 10. 
Jesus faces it all, and the worst happens. You say, well, what's the worst case scenario? That they just kill us all, right? The, the worst, Jesus faces it, and the worst happens. And this is what everything hinges on for us, is that the worst happens, which no one disagrees about. No honest historian disagrees that Jesus was a man who lived and died. What everything hinges on is what happens next. That he came back to life. So when we're facing this invitation to live on mission with Jesus, what is this an invitation to do? To deny ourselves, to die to ourselves because we know that death is not the end for us. This story in the Gospels will end with Jesus dying on the cross, but he lays down his life in order so that we could all have life forever with him. That's how the gospel is central in this message this morning. This is not a message that just says, here's all the things Jesus says to go do, so buckle up and go try to do it this week. This is a message that says this. I, I love this framework. I'm gonna, I'm gonna show you the answers in the back of the book for how a lot of sermons get built in my brain. This is from Tim Keller, okay? Here's what you, sh what you should do. Here's why you can't do it. Uh, here's how Jesus did it, here's how in Christ you can do it too. So a, a missions message that says, look, go, it's the call, it's the consequences, let's give our lives for Jesus, let's pray. What we've done is we've heaped, actually we've heaped the law on you and told you here's what you've gotta do, here's the works you've gotta measure up with if you're gonna claim the name of Jesus. You've gotta be this good at missions. Now I'm gonna pray for you and I'm gonna send you out and we better go do it, we'll talk next week about how good or bad you do. But actually, that's not, uh, that, it's ending the sermon before it ought to end because we say, here's what you ought to go do. Now, that doesn't remove the demand to go do it. Yes, we ought to do that, but here's why you can't do it. Here's these defeaters, but let me, let me show you Jesus. He went first. He faced every bit of opposition you're terrified of. He faced every bit of betrayal that you've considered. He's faced it all, and the worst happened. Now, how in Christ do we live that out? How does he enable us to live that out? And he gives us some reasons we can be confident at the end of chapter 10. First, we can be confident because we know God's ultimate authority. We've talked a good bit about something we call the curated life, where we try to edit what people see of us and try to shape the identity we want others to think we have. We can do this for all different kinds of audiences. We can even do this in a church and spiritual setting when it come across like a spiritual person. So we try to edit our lives so other people see us like that. We try to control the image that others perceive of us. We try to hide the bad and front the good. Why do we do that? The Bible talks about something called the fear of man. We all have a fear of other people. It's not just any fear though, it's an ultimate fear. It's a fear that borders actually on reverence. We so want people to have a good opinion of us and we so don't want some sort of bad reputation, not bad as an immoral, but bad as in the reputation. We don't want people to think that we're like that. We live in this fear of man and Jesus actually frees us from this fear of man by putting things in perspective. What's the worst they can do? Kill you? They can kill your body. They can't touch your soul though. There's actually one with greater authority than these people who are in authority that are gonna persecute you and try to take your life. Jesus puts authority into the proper perspective for us. We can have confidence because we know we serve the one with ultimate authority. 
Not all these mini fake kings that can kill us and think they've achieved something. But we follow the one with all authority. We can, we can be confident enough, actually, Jesus says, to lay our lives down. He invites us to deny ourselves as we follow him, to take up our cross. Which at the time, they wouldn't have understood the full meaning we do. They, they would have known this was a method of dying, but they wouldn't have understood that Jesus is literally gonna take up his cross. At this point in Matthew chapter 10, they, they wouldn't have seen that yet. But Jesus says, if you're gonna follow me, you actually need to be so confident in who God is. Be so confident that I'm gonna go first that you're willing to deny yourself, to die to yourself, to follow me. We lay down our agenda. We lay down the life we always thought we wanted. We lay down our plans. We lay down the authority that we thought we had to control our lives. And we recognize that when we begin to follow Jesus, our lives don't really belong to us anymore. They belong to him. We turn ourselves over to him. And then this gives us great confidence because we no longer have to be anxious and worried about how to build this life we've idolized in our mind. We can actually let that go. We don't have to be worried we're gonna not measure up to our own expectations anymore. We don't have to worry about holding our lives together and keeping things from falling apart. We don't have to worry about making sure we maintain a certain lifestyle. We turn everything over to Jesus. And finally, we can be confident because the results are his. Jesus says we deny ourselves and follow him. Our identity fades to the back and then we begin to follow Jesus. And like Anne reminded me this week that Dallas Willard says, the Christian life is something like, what would Jesus do if he were me? Jesus living through us, Galatians 2.20. If we're so united to Jesus, we're so close to him like he's described and he goes first and we follow and we are not just, we're not different or greater than our teacher but we are like our teacher as his disciples, then when we go out into the world to engage people, they ought to see Christ and not just ourselves. How does that give us confidence that the results are his? Well, Christian Followers of Jesus began to be called means little Christ. They got that reputation because they were little Christs in the world everywhere they went. And then as the world responded to him, Jesus says this, look, when they accept or reject you, they're not really accepting or rejecting you. They're accepting or they're rejecting me. And it's me in you that they're accepting or they're rejecting. And if, if we wanna see genuine responses of the, to the gospel through our ministry, then it begins with our own internal transformation. That we don't want to present ourselves as the thing that we're inviting people to. We want to present Jesus. How does that work? It's Jesus in us. Working through us, inviting people to himself. And so everyone who follows Jesus is called to be on the mission of Jesus. This is a calling we all have. Not because you're equipped enough, you're good enough, you know everything to say. No. It's because you're a follower of Jesus. And this mission has real consequences that are challenging, that are hard, that we're gonna have to wrestle with together in the years to come. But the good news this morning is that Jesus went first. He took up the call to live on mission and he left heaven and all his glory behind and he became a baby so that he can live a full human life to take our place and save us. He faced all all the scorn, all the betrayal. He faced shame and embarrassment. He faced punishments that he didn't deserve. And the worst happened so that the best could happen and he could be resurrected to new life. And he could impart that life to us 
And then we could be carriers of new life everywhere we go, showing people not ourselves, but Christ in us. Let's pray. God, we, <clears throat> we do love you, and we do love your word. We're very thankful, Jesus, that you go first, and you show us it's safe. Even if the worst happens, you show us it's safe. And so now this call to live on mission with you, Jesus, is not just another rule we've got to follow, not another bit of law you just pour on our heads, but actually this call is a call to let you shine in and through us. And that is what we want. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.